0: for filling in for me while I was away. He's always willing and very helpful, and I'm very grateful for that. And uh, I was out last Wednesday night, but I'm doing better, and so I still am not 100%, but I'm a lot better than what I was, so thank you. Thank you for mentioning me in your prayers, Marvin. Thank you for those prayers. I do solicit the prayers of this fine congregation in our behalf, and I'm very happy that we can be together and worship together as we have today. I'd like to say how much I enjoyed yesterday morning, the men's uh, breakfast. It was such a uh, lovely occasion, and I'm very grateful for the elders who oversaw that, and I'm very grateful for these deacons who made all those things happen. And there was a lot of work going on and a lot of men doing it, and it just went so well, and I'm very happy and thankful that I could be a part of it. And so thank you for planning that, and thank you for making that happen. That was the men's breakfast that was yesterday. I'd like to talk a little bit today about a very important subject to me, and I'm sure it is for you as well, and I'll do the best with it that I possibly can, and that is reverence for God. And I think it's something that's lacking in our modern day and time. I think we may be taking some things for granted, and I hope that I'll be able to look at this particular passage that I have in mind, and that is particularly uh, Psalms 111 and verse 9. And in Psalm 111 and verse 9, the Bible passage is given to us about God's holiness and God's reverence. And so I took those two words, reverence for God, and thought, I'll speak about that today and see how far I can go with it as far as time will allow. And I'd like to talk about, first of all, the first word in those three words, reverence for God, and that is the word God itself. And we learn from the pages of the Bible just how important this individual, this great being is, who has personality, who has love, and care for each and every one of us. Who is God? We might even just begin by asking that question. God is that being who has always existed, and who never, there never was a time when he did not exist. He's the self-existing one. He's the one that created all things other than himself, And he is eminent to the world, but yet transcends the world. And if you just stop and think about it, how do you define God anyway? And what Bible passage would you go to that really defines who God is? And I cannot find one Bible passage that really is comprehensive enough to include all of the qualities and characteristics of God. And so we're going to have to look at a number of Bible passages in order to define the first word for our study today, and that's God. And in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, We'll come back to that passage in just a minute. But in Exodus chapter 3, you see how that uh, Moses from the burning bush hears God speak to him, says, I am, I am that I am. And it is the verb to be there in the Hebrew language, and it is saying that God has always been, and God always will be. There's never a time when God was not, I am. It's a very simple way to explain and describe who God is, but yet it's a very profound way. explain and describe who God is. Isaiah, when he was talking to the wayward people of Israel, Judah in particular, he was talking about how wicked the leaders were, how slothful in their worship they had been. He said, but God really loves people who repent, and God really loves people who change their way. And he said, he is the high, and he is the holy one. He is the one who, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so one of the first things we'd have to come to an understanding about God is the fact that God has always been the self-existent one. There was never a time in which God was not. Now, there was a time in which the world was not. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But God was before the heavens and the earth. And he brought the heavens and the earth into being. And sometimes I just let my mind go wild when I start thinking about God and the creation. And what it must have been like. There was void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. There was nothing there. No symmetry, no design, no purposefulness. There was nothing except God Almighty. And God spoke the world into existence. And God, by the power of His own spoken word, said, let there be light. And there was light. Now this is the being that we've come to worship today. We're trying to understand more about Him. And if we really have a bad view a faulty view, an ignorant view of God, then it's naturally going to reflect upon our worship of Him and our desire to be pleasing to Him. But then when you let your minds just go wild and you can think about the unending, never-ending eternity which heaven will be, it boggles the mind and it buckles the knees when you begin to think about the greatness of God, how it was like before the world began, how it will be like when we go to be with God in heaven. It is an amazing consideration and thought to think about. Therefore, I'd like to look in some specific detail as to what the Bible means by God. And then we're going to look at what that means for me. First of all, let's look at the qualities of God. So I'll make this transition. Let's think about some of the characteristics that we learn about God and some of the omni-characteristics of God. By omni-characteristics, we simply mean he's omnipresent, he's omnipotent, he's omnibenevolent, he's omniscient. So let me spend just a brief moment talking about these great fundamental characteristics of God. When we say that God is omnipotent, we are saying that he can do all that can be done. In Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1, it was to Abraham, he said, I am the almighty God. And indeed, that's a good way to explain who He is and what He is, because He can do all that is capable of being done. God is the Almighty One. But then sometimes we look at the fact, and this really boggles my mind too, the idea of God being omniscient. God knows all that can be known. There's nothing there that God does not know. It's amazing to me that God, being God, knows everything that there is. For if there was one thing that he did not know, then he wouldn't be God. There'd be somebody who would know something God didn't know. But God knows that. God knows all that can be known. For example, in Acts chapter 15, they're they're discussing and wrestling with the problem of Gentile Christians being added to the church of the Lord. This is in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts. And the Holy Spirit is guiding and leading them in the conclusion that they're to draw. And he did that all men everywhere to be a part of the church of the Lord. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are, what you've done. If you'll repent and obey the gospel of Christ, be added to the church in the biblical way, you be acceptable to God. And then James gets up and speaks, who was a leader at that time. In verse 18, he said, Now God saw this in the long ago. He was always having this in mind. Then when you think about Paul and his writing in the book of Ephesians, where he writes about the greatness of the church, especially chapter 3, the great mystery whereby he wants Jew and Gentile into the body of Christ to be into this one body, the church of the Lord. The mind of God had that in his mind before the world ever began. I'm talking about God's omniscience. God knows. God thought it out. God knew it all before these particular matters took place. And then you can talk about the omnipresence of God, and this is another one that's hard for me to grasp. And I've tried my very best to try to understand the omnipresence of God, that God can be at all places at all times. And there's a Bible passage in Psalm 139 that'll help us just a little bit in this, and so I'll turn to that and study that with you just for a brief moment. And then in 139, he's saying particularly in verse 7 through 12, though I love this entirety of this psalm, Notice the omnipresence of God. He's everywhere. You can't run from God. You can't hide from God. And no matter where you are, God's already there. And I'm in Psalm 139. I'm in verse 7. Where can I go before your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn... If I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Verse 12. I've read for you today Psalm 139. And it's a beautiful passage, that paragraph, which really describes for us the omnipresence of God. You can't hide from God. You can't run from God. Though many people have tried, it just can't be done. God's already been there. Notice how he says it in very beautiful, poetic language. If I were like the wings, if I had the wings of darkness or light, you'd already be there. There's no way to flee from you. I just wonder about Jonah trying to run from God the way he did just what he thought he was going to be able to accomplish. He didn't understand. I suppose by being in the belly of that great fish, he came to know what it was like. You can't run from God. We need to be reminded of that. Sometimes we think, well, nobody's around to see me, and certainly no one knows what I'm thinking. But God does because God is omniscient and knows all that can be known. He's omnipresent, and he's everywhere at one time. I like to look at different illustrations to help me understand these particular matters. and None of them are really adequate, but I always thought of as you look at the Rose Bowl parade or the New Year's Day parade going down and you see this going down and that that exhibit going before and then after that a marching band and then after that another exhibit. And we see these matters in lineal type fashion. One comes after the other. But God sees the whole parade. And then I thought, well, maybe it's like a big picture to God. God sees the whole thing at one time, like a big snapshot. You see, these are just my feeble ways of trying to understand the quality and the characteristics of God. He's omniscient. He sees all. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time. But one of the great uh, matters about God and these uh, issues of God and the characteristics of God can certainly be said that He is omnibenevolent. And let me spend just a brief moment talking about that, that God is love. In 1 John chapter 4, in the verse of verse 8, it makes it very clear that God indeed is love and that there's no one that loves like God. God's love, uh, as um, the Old Testament prophets would say, is beyond our full understanding. New Testament writers of the Bible would say, we just fully cannot comprehend the great love of God. omnibenevolent omnipresent. Omnibenevolent, omniscient, omnipotent, qualities and the characteristics of God. And it's not a stretch for our imagination or nor our understanding for us to say, in the beginning, God created. Elohim created the heavens and the earth, the Hebrew word for God. But yet, it doesn't seem to be sufficient, does it, to look at God in such a way that there's so much more that needs to be said about God rather than these omni-characteristics of God. And some have tried to characterize the nature of God by looking at five primary attributes. So let me mention the primary attributes of God and make this transition in our study today, study a little bit about them, and just see how important they are for us. And when we talk about the primary attributes, we're talking, first of all, about the holiness of God. You see, that's a little bit different a topic than what we've been studying so far. And when we talk about the holiness of God, we're talking about His purity, His holiness. In fact, it's in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, Be ye holy as I am holy. God is holy and pure and high and lifted up as the Bible teaches that He certainly is. And then also one of the great attributes of God would be His justice. And I think one of the great writers of the Bible would be Isaiah who does write about the justice of God and he looks at it particularly in about verse 8 for I the Lord love justice I hate robbery and the burnt offering and I will faithfully give them their recompense and make an everlasting covenant with them notice the fact that God is just he wants it done he wants it done right and he's rebuking them with regard to their worship the worship is not what it ought to be and he says, you're going to receive recompense for the way that you've acted and the way that you behave. God is a God of justice. He wants it done right. But not only is he God of holiness and God of justice, he's also a God of mercy. And the Bible is filled with wonderful past Bible passages. And I'm just uh, wondering just exactly which would be the best one to consider for the present to illustrate the wonderful mercy of God. But I think I'll choose Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16. That certainly describes for us the mercy of God. Ephesians chapter 2 certainly is on my mind. But I'm going to Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 4, in the verse of verse 16, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's a supplementary type of prayer. Let us go to the throne of grace and mercy. The throne of grace and mercy is the throne of God Himself, whereby out of His great mercy He showed His great love for us. And that would be the next great characteristic, I think, that we should consider about God, and that is His love. I have mentioned it already, but it certainly becomes one of the five primary characteristics of God, God's love. And there are a lot of great passages about that, and I mentioned one already, First John chapter 4, verse 8. <coughs> but... You could look at John in 3.16 and you could also look at Romans chapter 5. And so I think I'll turn to Romans chapter 5 as one of my favorite passages on the love of God. And I'll read verse 8 in this particular passage as he's emphasizing justification by an obedient faith. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now that's an amazing statement Paul makes in Romans 5 verse 8. And that particular statement is coming from the standpoint of even though we did not deserve it, we so desperately needed it. And so God loved us. Even though we weren't lovable, God loved us anyway. But there's another important attribute that you and I need to consider before we leave this phase of our study today. And that's the attribute of integrity. That you can count on God. And if God says something is so, then we know that it's going to be so. His truth is one that can be uh, satisfied only by being performed. Notice in Psalm 100 a passage here that I think will help us, and it's a brief, um, brief psalm. It's one of the shorter of the psalms. Psalm 100 is a beautiful passage. It does talk about the matter of God's integrity, and I'm thinking about verse five. And he says here, "For the Lord is good; his loving kindness is everlasting." And his faithfulness to all generations. And then of course we could read a number of other passages. Psalm 117 and various passages. That talk about the wonderful integrity. Truthfulness of God. And somebody says well all that is fine brother Laws. All that is good but how does that affect me? If you'll notice every one of those attributes merge. At Calvary. If you'll notice man sinned. Invoking The justice of God. And in so doing, prompting the matter of His holiness being violated. Because of His justice, that sin's got to be paid for. And because of that, mercy must be extended. Mercy can only be demonstrated in its divine love. And then that divine love, His integrity and His truth is maintained. And when Jesus died on that cross for our sins... We see all of these primary attributes merged together. The holiness of God, the justice of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, the integrity of God, all come to play on that hill in Golgotha a long time ago, where God and his great attributes were satisfied only through Jesus Christ. But let's take it in reversal order just for a minute. And let's notice about this particular matter. When you think about the attributes of God and how they are satisfied at Calvary, then you notice, first of all, the great truth of God. God's Word is true, because God said that these particular matters would transpire and in turn be for the benefit of man. And because of that, it would be a demonstration of His divine love, whereby He would send His Son into the world, that the world might be saved through Him. But this love was prompted by the divine mercy of God, the mercy of God, the pity of God upon the man who really needs salvation and cannot do it himself but needs God's help in the matter. And that great justice of God is now satisfied because a perfect sacrifice has been offered and in so doing his holiness is maintained. Well, let's see what would happen If I offered myself as a sacrifice. Well I'm the sinner. I'm the one that's guilty of sin. I'll just offer myself as a sacrifice. But that even would not begin. To satisfy the justice of God. The justice of God would never be satisfied. With a sacrifice like that. Why the mercy of God. Well that would never be satisfied. (coughs) The holiness of God would not be maintained if an individual offered himself. One cannot offer himself simply as a matter of atonement. It's simply not meeting the qualities and the characteristics of God. Somebody said, well, let's see if I can do enough good works in this matter. I'll visit the sick. I'll go to the hospital. I'll give food to the poor. I'll be kind to the neighbor. And I'll devote myself to these wonderful works of kindness and charity. But even there, that would not satisfy even a modicum of the justice of God, which has been violated because of sin. The holiness of God has not been maintained. Even though I would do all the wonderful works that a man could possibly do, still it would not be enough in order to meet the satisfy and satisfy the qualities of God. Well, let's see. Maybe we can offer animal sacrifices. Perhaps it might be the blood of bulls and goats that will satisfy. But even there, the animal sacrifices of blood, the blood of bulls and goats, would not satisfy the great justice of God that has been infringed upon because of the sin of mankind. Now, God put in place an Old Testament system, which was but a prefigure for the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, you're going to read the following. For the law, since it has only a shadow of good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifice which they offered continually year by year, make perfect those who drew near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? (coughs) Because worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have laid conscience of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 4. Wouldn't be satisfactory. Couldn't do it. Wouldn't satisfy the holiness of God. Wouldn't meet the demands of the justice of God. Would not maintain the mercy of God. Only one way. Only one way this great God who is omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, infinite in holiness, infinite in justice could be satisfied. The only way that sin can be satisfied is by the cross of Jesus Christ on Calvary. And when that perfect sacrifice died on that cross... Then and only then could sin be paid for. Then and only then could sin be atoned for. And this great God who created heaven and earth and every soul in this building today in turn would receive forgiveness because of what Jesus did. It's the only way that it could be done. Now, let's make a transition from our present point. And we've looked at what has been done. Let's look at God from the standpoint of what He's done in the past for you and me. And what I'd like to do at this instance is to turn to the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, you have a very interesting um, section of Scripture which is helping us understand the great work of God Almighty. And in this you have the angel singing in a chorus, praising God for all that has been done. And I'm looking particularly here at Revelation chapter 4, and I'm looking particularly at about verse 8. Now, in 4 and 5, you have this scene of heaven. And that's what the word apocalypse means, the, the revelation, to pull back the curtain. So that we could see what's on the other side. And that's what God has done for John. And he pulls back the curtain and he lets John see what's going on in this heavenly scene. And what does he see here in Revelation chapter 4? Beginning for us in about verse 8. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes round and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty (coughs) who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed, and they were created. What you have in Revelation 4 is a beautiful doxology of creation, where God created all things, and they're honoring him and praising him for the same. Now notice what he's done. Let's look at another summary of God. <coughs> Excuse me, it's in chapter 5. And in chapter 5, you're going to see, and you really need to go back up there to about verse 9, and look at this particular doxology of praise offered to God. And they sang a new song, saying, verse 9, chapter 5, Worthy are you to take the book and to break the seals, for they were slain, purchased for God, and your blood Uh, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And then he goes on and tells us in this particular passage, and I want to read on into verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, (coughs) and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them were myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them. I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and the Lamb and blesses and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. And what do you have other than a doxology of recreation, of redemption? A doxology of creation in chapter 4. A doxology of recreation in chapter 5. Glory and praise to God because of what He has done. Now I want to make another transition in our study today. And I want to talk a little bit about what God is doing now. And I If I had an opportunity to go back, an opportunity to go back and start all over again in my preaching life, I wouldn't change much, but I think I'd change this. I'd teach more on what God is doing now in my life than what I have in the past. I've taught a lot in the past and rightly so what God has done. But I think sometimes our brethren get the idea God quit working. That God worked in the long ago. He doesn't work anymore. Now all he does is just sort of watch us do the best we can. But that's simply not true. Let's think about for a minute what God continues to do even now. I'm thinking about the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. and In Hebrews chapter 1 and a close parallel to this will be Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17. But I want you to notice what God is doing now through Jesus Christ. And he's holding all things by the word of his power. And that's his point in verse 3. And he is the radiance of his glory (coughs) and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now we can take time to read Colossians 117, but basically it says the same thing. He's holding it all together right now. The Bible talks about a day in which the earth will be destroyed with fervent heat. In fact, it talks about it in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 and verse 10. And that all the works of mankind will be destroyed. What keeps that from happening now? Why, the power of God. What keeps the rotations and the revolutions of the earth together like they are? Do you think that just happened to be? It's the power of God that's making that a matter of life For us. God continues to work. Not only is He in creation and in redemption, but now He continues with regard to mankind and mankind's need. And I want to tell you a passage of Scripture I've held to my heart, and nobody in this building knows how much. And that's Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. And when you look at that great passage of Scripture how that it talks about God's going to work all things out for good to them that love Him and for them that love His appearing. You can come to understand what God is doing in your life. Providentially, He's helping you. He knows what you need. He knows the problems that you face. And in so doing, He's helping you with those problems. May we never forget what God continues to do in our lives. In 1 Peter chapter 3, and the verse of verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. What I'm trying to do today is to give us a better understanding of who God is and what he has done for you and for me. And I think one of the best ways to understand that is to look at the names for God. That's my point of emphasis. Reverence for God. And I'm trying to understand God right now. And the names of God are very meaningful. In Genesis chapter 1, you have the Hebrew word Elohim. It is translated into our English translations, in the beginning, God. No one really knows the beginning or the origin of that word. It probably means the powerful one the one who has all power and the Egyptians in the long ago were saying it was Amun-Ra and the Babylonians were saying it was Nabu the Assyrians would say it was Asher but Moses said it's God in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 And if I may, may I add a side note? There's nothing in this world that teaches us otherwise. We know from what we know, it had a beginning. And the beginning was with God. Now when you pray today, think about who you're praying to. You're praying to God, the creator of heaven and earth, who brought it about by his spoken voice, and his spoken word. He is the all-powerful one. In Exodus chapter 3, I mentioned just a moment ago about another name for God. and This, I suppose, may be my favorite name for God. And this is the name that was given to Moses from the burning bush. And naturally, Moses has been given a commission to go to the land of Egypt and free the people of God. And he said, Lord, who shall I say sends them? (coughs) And they're going to ask me, who sent you down here to do this? And from the burning bush, he said, tell them, I am send you. I am that I am. As I mentioned a moment ago in verse 14 and 15, this is a verb. And this verb, sometimes verbs express a state of being. And this really capsulizes the divine nature of God. He has always been. A point that I've made a moment ago. He's always been. There never was a time when He was not. So when you pray today, you're praying to the great I Am. The one who has always been. Who always will be. That there's never a time in which He will not be. Translators have a problem translating this particular word. You see, the high priest would only pronounce this word once a year at the Day of Atonement. Through the centuries, the pronunciation of the word has been lost. We don't really know how to pronounce this word. Translators came along and they transliterated the word, taking the Hebrew characters and putting them into English characters, and it came out the word Jehovah. Now that's a word we're familiar with. Jehovah God is the idea behind this word. But that's not really the word. That's a transliteration of the word. How the word is actually pronounced, we don't know. When you come across that in a Hebrew text, you're going to insert the word Adonai. A word that I talk about in a minute. Lord. That's how much respect they had for God they wouldn't even pronounce that word. I am that I am. When you pray today, you're praying to Jehovah God. In the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 16, you have a problem there between two women. One of the women is Sarah, married to Abram. But she doesn't have any children by Abram, and so according to the oriental custom of the day, She actually thought, I think, that she was doing the right thing, gave her handmaiden to her husband Abraham to have children by her. Her name was Hagar. (coughs) Well, Hagar conceives and is going to have a son. Now Sarah despises Hagar. And there's hard feelings between Hagar and Sarah, and Hagar leaves. And she goes out into the desert. But then the angel of the Lord, which may have been a pre incarnate appearance of Christ Himself, maybe so, I don't know, takes care of her and sees after her, and she calls that Elroy, which is a Hebrew word, a name for God, the God who sees. In Genesis chapter 16, notice in about verse 13, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing Him? Therefore the well was called Beher Lalahiroi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Berid. Elroy. The God who sees. When you pray to God today, you're going to be praying to the God who sees you. Who knows you, who understands your needs, just like Hagar in the wilderness, he understood and he provided for and he cared for. That's the kind of God that we have today. In the book of uh, Genesis, another one of my favorite passages would be Genesis chapter 17. And in Genesis chapter 17, you're going to have another name for God. And what this does is it helps me understand his divine nature. This is El Shaddai. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. This is El Shaddai. There's none greater than God. God Almighty. This wasn't just God that was speaking to you. This was God Almighty speaking to you, Abraham. And when you pray today, you're praying to God El Shaddai, the Almighty, the all-powerful one. In Genesis chapter 22, there's a passage there that boggles my mind. Genesis chapter 22, there Abraham draws back the knife to slay his son Isaac. But the angel of the Lord came and stopped him. And I just wonder what great faith Abraham must have had. And there in turn, God provided the sacrifice. He looked over there to the side and Abraham saw a ram whose horns was caught in a thicket. God provided a sacrifice in place of Isaac. Isaac was not sacrificed. He was spared. And the ram, the Hebrew word there looks like, it means a white ram, whose horn was caught in the thicket. And there in turn, Abraham would call the place Jehovah Jireh. God provides. When you pray today, you're praying to God who will provide. He knows your situation and he will provide what you need. Jews today will take what's called a sofa. A sofa is used to introduce the feast and the festivals of the different Jewish religions. and It's a long ram's horn. He'll take up there and he'll blow that ram's horn. Carol and I were at Mount uh, Masada and we went through the tourist section there and of course that was always interesting to me and there's a big sofa there the man look at that sofa that's a ram's horn it had gold mouthpiece to it and gold edge over here and all shellacked up and i took that thing i said can i blow that and i said yeah you can blow it so i sort of blew it like a fox horn it just didn't work right for me and then my guide who's with me, he took that thing. I said, blow this thing. He blew that thing you could hear for a country mile. I'd like to have brought that thing home with me, a sofa, ram's horn. That goes back to their thinking, where God provided the ram in place of Isaac. And in turn, he's the God that provides. That's who we're praying today to. That's who we're worshiping today. When we come to this place in this assembly in this auditorium, we're worshiping God. I'm not here to be entertained. I'm not here to have my conscience sued. I'm here to praise God. That's why we sing these songs. That's why we pray these prayers. To pray to the great God of heaven and earth. Tonight, Lord willing, I'll talk about the second word in this statement. I'll talk about reverence. And I hope you'll be with me here tonight to do it. If you've never obeyed the gospel, I urge you to do it today. Understand your obedience and your need and responsibility to obey God. Ask for His forgiveness by your obedient faith, by repenting of sin and being baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. I ask and urge you to be baptized into Christ confess his name, and in turn receive his forgiveness, his mercy, and the benefits of Calvary. Won't you do it? While together we stand and while we sing.